The Guardian. You're listening to the Futurescape Short Stories podcast, in which writers imagine what life will be like in the year 2025. The project is an exciting collaboration between Sony and Forum for the Future. It encourages people to think more deeply about the possibilities for our future. In this edition, we feature Marcus Albers reading his story, Eternal Bliss. He woke with a start, not knowing where he was or how he got there. Darkness surrounded him. He tried looking around, looking at his hands, but there was only blackness. Light, he said. Check messages. Then, what time is it? At home, these phrases would have prompted the room to react in a familiar, intimate way. To do things like turn on his vintage Arne Jakobsen lamp, the one he had kept after René was gone or to light up the bedroom's visual walls in gentle greys and reds with a stylized search window, a visualization of his search history, or an oversized rendering of a classic digital alarm clock from 1985. But here was only darkness. He tried to concentrate, to remember. He was not at home, so he must be in a hotel. He was most of the time anyway. Obviously not one of the big chains, since his orders would then have prompted at least a standard reaction from the intelligent room. It must be some super chic design affair, too cool to bend to the universal laws of voicecom. Damn how he hated these pretentious boutique joints, especially when waking up with the worst possible mixture of jet lag and hangover. He could still smell the single malt in the room's aseptic cold. Then it came back to him, one fragment at a time. The agency, calling him two days ago, a research assignment most pressing. Of course, the client would pay a substantial daily fee without the haggling that usually resulted in a large discount, depending on his current credit rating. Him, grabbing his packed, poured a long hauler bag and going straight to the airport. Everything was arranged, flight reservation in his name, spell check, Robert Weil, Berlin, United States of Europe, correct. One couldn't be too careful these days, especially when traveling to the UAE with a super strict secure tech at immigration. He also remembered a detailed briefing sent to his machine, which he had started beaming against the backseat of the old electric Mercedes Electrocab, the kind you only found in Europe anymore on his way to Willy Brandt Airport. Robert recalled briefly looking up from the data stream and out of the cab's window. The city was still asleep in its melancholy mixture of slightly shabby high-tech architecture, rundown factories and fading graffiti. He boarded the Etihad flight to Abu Dhabi and spent five hours on board streaming videos and layered augmentations about the person he was sent to look for. Abu Dhabi the Eclipse Terrace. What a pompous name for such a shithole. Probably a luxury hotel 15 years ago, but it had aged badly and was run down. No eye assist, no visual walls, just an old school aircon cutting ice down his neck. His client wasn't lacking the money to pay for something better, that much he knew, but the Eclipse was supposed to keep him under the radar. Whose radar? He didn't know. He got up, found a good old light switch and checked his machine. It was now 10.30 in the morning, 
7.30 a.m. in Berlin, the moment Robert always woke up, no matter what time zone. René used to joke about this, calling him my alarm clock. God, how he missed her. Whenever something strange or funny happened, he instinctively got out his machine to tell her about it, but of course he couldn't, not anymore. Robert opened the curtains to the sun, showered, plopped his wrinkle-free Uniqlo travel suit out of its bottle-sized container and went down to the lobby for a double espresso. Then another one, to chase off the fogginess. He had to be alert today. He would meet the emir. The hotel's concierge beam screen confirmed that outside, a metaphor since the whole city was covered with a roof anyway, outside his auto drive was waiting. It was one of the Google BMW six-seaters you see everywhere in the Middle East. There are almost no robocars in Europe, of course, not even back home in Berlin. After the euro went down in 2013, the continent had begun the steady decline everyone had predicted, just a little faster. Tanking economies, aging populations, no money to deal with climate change in a sophisticated and high-tech way, so people were instead allocated individual budgets of carbon credits and forced to conform to them. So you didn't see many cars in Berlin anyway, except for a few taxis. Most of the old boulevards in the east side of town have been converted to massive stretches of urban gardening. The capital of the US of E is now an agricultural hub. Who would have thought that back when Berlin was chiefly a playground for artists and media slackers by day, at a booming dance floor at night. Robert smiled. Of course, smart new technologies helped. People in Europe, as in most parts of the old world, got used to having the energy consumption monitored by the government. You learned to use your carbon credit wisely. Among his friends, Robert was the only one to still travel long-haul distances on a regular basis. In his line of work, it was a necessity, of course, and his clients paid for the creds. But apart from that, he led a life that was pretty much confined to his community, much as anyone else. Walking or bicycling, finding comfort in spending time with friends and neighbors, instead of the unbridled consumption of only a few years ago. Shopping is so 2010, René always said, only half-joking. And hey, he still had the good fortune of seeing other parts of the world in person, not just via virtue holidays like his friends. But everyone knew that the real cutting-edge innovations were coming from elsewhere, China mostly and the Middle East. At first you didn't really notice it, but when getting back from his journeys, he sensed the divide. In Europe, the infrastructure had become a little shabby. Paris and London had finally acquired the seen-better-times look that always distinguished cities like Lisbon and Berlin. It was picturesque. Visiting Koreans and Kuwaitis loved the patina. Life wasn't bad, especially in Germany, where the economy had stayed robust a little longer and people were used to recycle the garbage anyway. Now they were even growing their own food. And even Robert was fond of the four smallish apple trees on his terrace. All these vegetable patches and fruit groves, people lingering in cafes and on sidewalks, most were too old to work and there weren't many jobs to begin with, all this gave the city the slightly Mediterranean feel he liked. Temperatures having risen by two degrees Celsius on average didn't hurt either. But of course, what once had been called progress moved to other parts of the world. So did the money and his clients. 
The auto driver roused him from his slumber with a chipper chime. His passenger door slid open. He half expected to be hit by an onslaught of torrid air, as would have been the case in earlier years when he had first traveled the region. But in addition to the whole city being roofed, the car was now already sealed airtight to the building he was about to enter. The intensified stream of air condition from the lobby made him sneeze. Okay, he thought. So, the Mark Zuckerberg Foundation had extended our lifetimes by 35% over the last 10 years, wiped out AIDS as well as the most aggressive forms of cancer and male impotence, but he still got his regular colds just like when he was eight years old. Mr. Weil, welcome to Sarbar Investment. A good-looking man with trimmed gray beard and sad eyes, dressed in a traditional tharp and guthra, approached him, gesturing towards the lobby bar. He knew this guy from the briefing videos on the plane. The man had been running the country's transport department back when building infrastructure was still a top priority. Rashid al-Dakwan, the man introduced himself, director of the Department of Eternal Life, mm, the DEL. Back in Europe, people were living to be 90, 100 at most, which he considered pretty good. His father had died at 95 last year, his mother was 96 and still going strong. But over here, cheating death was where the government put most resources. Already the Arabs' average lifespan was an impressive 120 years. And after last year's massive brain drain from the West, they also had the brightest minds working on making their residents live even longer, maybe forever, starting, of course, with the royal family. The latest technology, one that Robert had been researching, was called BB, or Brain Backup. It involved creating a digital replica of a brain through reverse engineering and uploading the content of a deceased person's memories onto a powerful hard drive. As the name suggested, it was only a backup. You couldn't interact with it. But one day soon, you would, or so the experts said. The data would then eventually be downloaded into a replicant of the individual, effectively creating eternal life. This was bringing back the dead, at least the ones being affluent enough to afford this procedure. Scientists believed they were about three to five years away from getting a handle on this. Robert had been wondering why Rashid was meeting him in the country's biggest investment company instead of his government office. He knew that Sabar was deeply intertwined with the DEL. And he had learned in the past that asking too many questions too early was not exactly helpful. Robert was a good listener, and over the years that had proved to be an integral part of his professional success. The bar was an elaborate affair in green and white, serving over 30 kinds of coffee-related refreshments and boasting the name Saba Bucks. Nine years ago, he remembered, Sabar had bought the then-popular American coffee chain Starbucks. A sensible move, given the long-standing and rather irrational fascination Arab business people had for Starbucks products. Saba then outfitted all official buildings with Sabarbucks coffee bars. Rashid ordered an iced hand-ground pour-over, though obviously there was no person behind the bar with hands to grind, just the usual screen and a double espresso for Robert. After some small talk about travel, health, and the latest carpet-cred riots in the US, Rashid got down to business. Unfortunately, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed will not be able to see you today, he said without even trying to sound apologetic. 
Muhammad ibn Said al-Khan, the country's ruler, had taken over four years ago from his brother Khalifa. But I will proceed with your briefing so that you can start your work immediately. Robert just nodded. He knew he had never really been scheduled to see the emir. That was just the typical pretense of courtesy. It was always the henchmen you spoke to, often distant relatives of minor importance. Just as well. Robert had learned all he needed to know for this job from studying the info on the plane. This was going through the motions of hierarchy. For them, he was a mercenary from a poor country, a man for odd jobs with a special skill. Years ago, Robert Weil was what people then called a journalist. Today, that was a desperately old-fashioned concept, one he had trouble explaining to kids. There were no newspapers around anymore and no TV stations. People streamed their individually tailored content via their machines onto any desired service these days. The content came from other individuals. When Robert was young, they were special and called bloggers, and today it was simply everybody communicating. Or it was high-end branded content from companies, which wasn't really as bad as it sounded. You got exactly the information or entertainment you wanted when you wanted it. Your fine-tuned social filters chose what was relevant for you, matching your needs much better than those editors and program directors of the past. Brands had learned to interact with you on a personal instead of a commercial level. You really wanted to stay with them for the rest of your life. Of course, privacy was history now. Otherwise, how else should the brands and the streamers know how to feed your deepest desires? The system was convenient, context-sensitive and personalized. It just definitely wasn't journalism anymore. So Robert had conceded years ago that he was part of a dying breed. If editors were not calling anymore, he had decided, then other businesses would buy his unique capabilities. He had long stopped calling himself a journalist. Reporter also sounded desperately passé. Robert's global business profile read Research Professional. This was sufficiently vague so that all kinds of customers were calling him, at least after his client list started boasting big corporate names. And call they did. Branding agencies looking for trend pattern recognition, R&D labs wondering about their competitors, assigning him with all kinds of silly jobs he was sworn to never reveal. Robert learned that with this special kind of freelance work, and that was all there was today, with unemployment figures in Europe around 30%, he could actually earn good money without working all the time, especially if you lived in a cheap city like Berlin and grew your own fruit. True, today people could let their screens search the invisible clouds of data that surrounded every person, every city, every business, and within nanoseconds they would find exactly what they were looking for, except when they didn't, which was when people like Robert came into play. Because Robert would search not only tags and keywords and metadata. He was no algorithm. He would actually talk to people, would check into the physical world that was still out there, beyond the augmented reality projectors in people's living rooms. He would question the data, would search with a tool that machines still hadn't learned to use, cynicism. That was why he didn't buy the info this Rashid guy had been sending him. Peter Masch, a German scientist from Munich, had been hired by Zabar and the DEL. 
He was widely considered to be the world's best neuroengineer. And so it seemed he was onto something, having to do with brain backup. But then, just five days ago, Mush disappeared from Abu Dhabi. Now Saba wanted him back and quickly. Robert asked, 20 million dirham per year plus citizenship and you still couldn't make him stay? We don't know whether he left voluntarily, Rashid replied, fiddling with his paper cup. In fact, many at DEL think he didn't, and after all, that's why we contacted you. What if he took your money and ran, Robert asked. Rashid looked sincerely surprised. Where would he run to? Back to Munich? He said it with a subtle smile. The smile then widened to a grin with just a hint of contempt. Or to the US? Robert didn't reply, but he knew what Rashid meant. No one would leave here unless he had to. This was 2025, and compared to many other parts of the world, the UAE was paradise. If you liked your autodrives gold-plated and your aircon 24-7. Robert didn't, really, but with René gone and Berlin becoming a city of farmers in its post-post-industrial way, he knew he at least would do anything to stay. And maybe these shakes could help him get back the woman he loved. I need one month, said Robert. Rashid shook his head, his eyes even sadder now. Twelve days, counting from today. On February 26th, we have our quarterly presentation to the Emir. If Marsh isn't back by then, his voice trailed off. He pulled himself together. Twelve days, he said. A hundred thousand dirham bonus for every day before bed. Robert didn't say anything for a while. He looked at the empty paper cup in his hand, at the vast lobby with glassy visual walls and floors, moving with animated graphic metaphors of Saba Investments' many activities. Outside, the fleet of auto drives hummed along. He wondered for a moment which religion's concept of paradise he was witnessing here exactly. He did miss his Icru apple orchard and the dirty, friendly mess of Berlin. I want citizenship, he said, looking back at Rashid, being careful not to blink. Impossible, Rashid replied. Then I can't accept. Rashid met his stare for what felt like a minute, then broke off and breathed out heavily. <sighs> okay, let me look into it. I'll get back to you this evening. Robert watched as about 20 cleaning robots, each the size of his hand, swarmed over one of the visual walls, removing invisible stains, trying to further polish the immaculate surface. He looked at his reflection behind the swirling infographics. He needed a shave, he thought. His shirt was wrinkled. He looked tired. Or maybe it was just this environment that made him feel so really, really old world. When he snapped out of his stupor, Rashid was gone. Still water, Robert said to the bar's screen. No, make that a Hendrickson tonic. Sorry, sir, no alcohol in this facility, the screen replied in a vaguely Swiss accent. Robert took the water and stepped out into his waiting auto drive. On the way back to the hotel, he thought again about what it might be like actually living here. Immigration had been even stricter than last time. They don't want to let anyone in here anymore, he thought, and no wonder. Between about 2000 and 2020, the UAE had used its oil money to boost tourism and culture. 
Then they realized, with climate change gaining speed, that the old world became more and more obsessed with monitoring its citizens' carbon production. Many Europeans and Americans felt the governments were now babysitters. Those who could still travel went to Asia and the Middle East trying to emigrate. With its gigantic solar farms in the deserts, the Arab world now was one of the few places where you could still mindlessly churn out those carbon credits and live the good life. So the UAA began turning down numbers of visitors, investing less of their petro diran into hotels and even more into technology. One that promised them the only thing up until now money couldn't buy a substantially longer life. Abu Dhabi today was the center of a prospering LPM business. The super-rich all over the world craved for LPM or life-prolonging medicine. And the emir had realized that by promoting it, he could make even more money than on ordinary tourism and might find eternal life for himself at the same time. If anyone could pull off transforming brain backups into real people again to bring back the dead, it was the sheikhs and the international crew of scientists. So living here, as a not-so-super-rich person, it was worth a shot, Robert thought, back in his hotel room, lying spread out on the mattress. Here he could offer René a new life, Robert thought, a life of eternal bliss. He just needed Rashid to let him stay, and for this he needed to find Mash. Tomorrow he would start his search in Munich. In the old-fashioned hotel room, there were no screens to monitor his activity. No machines waited patiently for his orders. A room strangely free of the multi-feeds and the pattern recognition AI and the carbon cred scanners that usually accompanied you every moment of your life. The absence gave him a cozy feeling of anonymity. For the first time today he felt the muscles around his eyes relax. Robert again thought about having a drink, but instead pulled a flexible visual page from his pocket. He looked at it for a long time, his fingers hovering over its moving image, as if wanting to caress it, but not quite. From the display a tiny sound of laughter drifted through the room. When he finally fell asleep, the tool slipped from his fingers to the floor. On it, a short movie of a black-haired young woman making funny faces for the camera played in a loop. Superimposed over the image was one line of simple Helvetica script. René Hoffmann, 1993-2025. The Guardian's Sarah Crown spoke to Marcus about his story. Okay, so Marcus, in your story, Eternal Bliss, we're reading this just after the launch of the iPad 3, and what you're talking about a lot of the time is very, very covetable technology, isn't it? Is this what your vision of the future is, a sort of technological paradise? Well, I wouldn't say it's a paradise, actually. I mean, the story has more of a dystopian uh, feel to it, I would say. But then again, the technology is pretty smart um, in this world, I try to imagine. I mean, the problem, of course, always is if you try to imagine what the world will be like in 10 to 15 years, it's hard and it's pretty likely that you will get things wrong. But still, I, I try to come up with some things that already exist today, but not as good and that would then be improved um, and would be incorporated into daily life by 2025. Yeah, as you said, it's not a uniformly positive picture, actually. And one of the things that you mention 
for example, is the loss of privacy that people are experiencing, and which again seems to spin out of, of issues that we're dealing with today. Is this something that you see happening, a, a reduction of kind of personal autonomy? Yeah, I actually do think that the that the idea of, of, of privacy is something that will go away pretty soon. I mean, in Germany, this is a huge topic. I mean, everybody is afraid of, you know, giving your data to Facebook and to Google. But sometimes I feel like this is an almost unique German position because in the rest of the world, it doesn't seem to be that much of a problem. And in any case, I think technology will will answer this for us. So in 10 years, maybe, I think most of our data will be available online. One of the other things that we anticipate um, when we all look collectively towards the future is the issue of climate change. And you deal with this not in terms of the disastrous environmental effects that it may or may not be having. And um, you mentioned sort of in passing that the temperatures in Europe have raised by a couple of degrees. But what you do talk about is the way in which economically we're managing it, the idea of carbon credit and that being the currency that, that we're operating in. And, and this, I thought, was a, was a very interesting idea um, in terms of how we sort of operate in the future rather than, you know, the exciting things that we might have, the limits, I suppose, that we have to operate within. Yeah, I mean, th- this is a scenario I, I think is, is quite likely that, you know, people will have to manage the amount of carbon they, they produce in some way or another and that governments will start monitoring us. So it doesn't have to be carbon credits, but that's one way to do it. So each individual would then have a certain amount of carbon credits they can use throughout the year, for example. So you have, can choose whether you want to take a long haul journey and then all your credits are gone, or whether you rather want to you know, um, take a vacation in Germany, in my case, and probably use a car. So this is a scenario I can, I can imagine will be happening in one way or another, because the market will then somehow solve the problem of climate change. And as an author, do you find it more interesting when you're, when you're writing about the future to write about the possibilities or to write about the limits that you imagine being introduced? One, uh, one of the starting points for the story were the, the scenarios that had been developed by, by this uh, Futurescapes initiative. And many of those scenarios do speak about the limits rather than the possibilities, I have to say. I thought that was interesting. Because usually, if, if you look at the future, authors tend to look at the bright side of it, like technology can, can solve all problems. But it probably can't. So I think dealing with, with the limitations uh, we will see in the future is interesting because not everything will be bright and shiny and better. Many things will probably even go backwards. We will probably grow our own uh, vegetables uh, in our backyard again in 20 years. I'm a journalist and I was alarmed about your vision of the future for journalism. Certainly this idea that news is, as a commodity kind of disappears by 2025 and we just receive all of the content that we want to consume either directly from companies or from interested individuals or indeed just any individuals it seems, it seems that you're suggesting. Goodness, <laughs> is this what we have to look forward to as journalists? You know, I put that in because I knew that all my journalist friends would hate it. No, but I mean, if you look at how things really do develop, on, on the one hand, you, you have bloggers and, and people uh, twittering. In certain respects, they are much quicker and often even better informed than journalists are. And on the other hand, you have, you, you have brands, you have companies who more and more start to use communication as a marketing tool. 
corporate publishing, magazines, movies, etc. So I think both of those trends will increase in the future, definitely. And it will be really hard for us journalists to, um, to still find um, a place in the middle. Your vision of the future in Eternal Bliss, do you think that it's a better place than the one that we're in now in 2012? That's a good question. It will be a different place. And I think it doesn't really make sense to think about it in terms of better uh, or not. Because, I mean, if you think back 10 or 20 years, was the world a better place then? I don't know. It was just different. So I think it's better to think about it. Things are changing and you have to adapt. And I'm quite sure about that. We will adapt and technology will help us adapt and society will adapt. So even if bad things happen, you know, like climate change, whatever, there will be ways to deal with that. And the world will not necessarily be a place that is, you know, much worse than today. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.